Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by Michael Allen, the managing director of Beacon Global Strategies. Michael previously served as majority staff director of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, as well as on the National Security Council during the George W. Bush administration. Roger and Michael discuss his career in national security, the role of the intelligence community in Afghanistan, and the future of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Michael Allen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, you are a known cyber intel, national security expert in Washington, D.C. Uh, for those who don't know you, you kind of came to that world or came on the scene in a public fashion during the uh, George W. Bush administration. Uh, where you served on the National Security, Security Council staff, uh, first as uh, the person leading legislative affairs for the National Security Council. Steve Hadley was the National Security Advisor at the time. Then, of course, uh, you were a senior director dealing with counterproliferation issues. How'd you get on the Bush team? I volunteered. I called in January of 2001, one person I knew from Senator Jeff Sessions' office and said, do we know anyone who is over on the Bush-Cheney transition team? And that was the best call I ever made. And I said, I'm a lawyer. I'll work for free. I can start tomorrow and I'll do anything. And I got a call back a few hours later and I was a volunteer the next day. And that's the, the most fortunate thing that's ever happened to me. Well, in my Volunteering, life. free labor goes a long way. Um, and uh, national security and foreign policy was always a passion of yours. You, obviously, you have a JD, but did you want to work in that part of government or was anything that they would throw at you? I did. My mother, during the Tiananmen Square protests, said to me, you should start watching the news. And so I came over, started watching everything I could, in particular, Tom Brokaw. And from then forward, I was hooked. Now, I went into campaign politics. I was also hooked on that for a time. but came back to foreign policy, national security affairs, and it's been a, a great pursuit ever since. So, of course, you're working in the Bush administration. Uh, that administration dealt with 9-11 and the aftermath. So many uh, challenges the United States faced uh, during those years. Uh, you were involved in a lot of, a lot of it. Um, Talk to me uh, first about the intelligence community. You're the author of a book called Blinking Red, Crisis and Compromise in American Intelligence After 9-11. Uh, my recollection is, Michael, after your service in the Bush administration and then serving as the staff director of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, you had this expertise in the intelligence community and you decided to write uh, a book about how it was organized and and how it was reformed and and the intelligence failures uh, that led up to 9/11. Um, 
why did you write that book? And and a lot's changed since. But what was take us through the kind of the major argument insight from Blinking Red? Yeah, of course. Um, thanks for the question. So I was in the right place at the right time um, when the 9-11 Commission report came out in August 2004. This was something all of a sudden that the White House, the Bush White House, had to deal with. And so I was lucky enough to become the legislative, sort of the working level legislative affairs officer on the ensuing sprint to legislate and reorganize the intelligence community. But going backwards, you know, we saw two massive intelligence failures in President Bush's first term. I mean, the first was, of course, while the CIA and others may have provided strategic warning that there were terrorists out to get the United States, there was nothing specific. There was no tactical warning that they might take airplanes. And so it was a large intelligence failure and the 9-11 Commission and congressional committees were very busy studying what happened. One of their conclusions, and this is really interesting, especially if you go back and read the 9-11 Commission, the CIA was on to several al-Qaeda terrorists overseas. And we followed them around Asia and we lost them when they came into the United States. The CIA's remit is not inside the United States. It's for the FBI to do it. And as the 9-11 Commission famously said, we fumbled the handoff. And so the 9-11 Commission started to think to themselves, you know what, it's not the era of the Soviet Union anymore when all of our intelligence assets like satellites and the rest can stare overseas. We need to be able to adapt to a new, um, you know, stateless stateless threat in a terrorist that can be overseas and then move into the United States. So they said, well, let's create something called the National Counterterrorism Center where we can put together foreign intelligence and domestic intelligence. And I just was thought it was a fascinating story. And since I was the working level guy on it, I thought I ought to record it for history. It's not the most exciting book in the world, but if you want to know how in the world did we end up creating a National Counterterrorism Center and then also a new leader of the intelligence community, the director of national intelligence. This is the book that you'll go back and look at. Yeah. And I encourage everybody, you can go on Amazon and write <laughs> in Michael Allen, director of national intelligence. Uh, we're looking at him here probably in his home office, but you know, there's still some empty bookshelves there. So if we buy more books, it, maybe he could. It made it into shelves. paperback. Somebody's there. still reading it out there. Fantastic. Well, I bet everybody who's studying intelligence, particularly in universities and graduate programs, they're consulting it. Uh, let's just stay with this a little bit more. Obviously, we're, we, we came upon the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 recently. Um, but it, it's kind of interesting as you're telling this story is that you have the Bush administration, which, of course, is in office uh, when 9-11 happens. It wasn't long after uh, Bush entered office, right? Uh, entering right. office in January 20, uh, 2001. And then some, you know, nine months later, you have this attack on the homeland. Um, you have this commission that's established, which was not actually the commission that the president of the United States wanted or designed, right? It was, it was, uh, my recollection is the Congress that came in and, and mandated it. Uh, of course, the president, uh, uh, had a, signed it into law. And then your job and the job administration now was to kind of, okay, 
manages outside commission's perspective, which is authoritative, right? You had, you know, emissaries, leading lights, uh, doing this investigation it was written well, it was a national bestseller. And now you have to kind of make it happen, implement these recommendations and do it in a fashion that is true to the 9-11 commission's recommendations, but at the same time allows the president of the United States, in this case, President Bush, to live with it and govern in a fashion that works for him. Did I get that right, Michael? You did. The 9-11 commission was so popular that when they put out their report, I used to say, and others used to say, that the Congress adhered to it like it was the written word from, from God, like it was the Bible. People looked at their other recommendation for a director of national intelligence that had strong budgetary capacity, had the ability to move satellites and move people um, around as something authoritative and that we absolutely needed to do without consulting the other experts in the Congress. And so it quickly became controversial uh, among people who looked after the Department of Defense because it became a classic Washington battle of, all right, what is this new person, the Director of National Intelligence, going to control? Is he going to control just the CIA or is he going to control other intelligence assets that reside in the Department of Defense? So that was part of the rub. That was what the big fight was about. And so it was a fascinating Washington tale of bureaucracies fighting over their own turf. And of course, yeah. when you were talking about the key finding and recommend, you know, recommendation that came from the 9-11 Commission, fundamentally, you know, the CIA, as you, you, you share with us, was following these terrorists, but then they failed, they, they fumbled, they, they didn't execute the handoff to the FBI, which also has its intelligence function, right? So it was a failure of different agencies getting along. And now you're describing that we're trying to create this director of national intelligence, and there's some two dozen agencies that now have, all have to fall under this new leadership, uh, and they're probably fumbling by design, right? They don't want to work together. They often don't want to work together because they feel like they have uh, another mission. But the rub, the the issue that we created when we revised the intelligence community in 2004 was that the 9/11 Commission said we needed a leader. We needed a quarterback. We needed an orchestra conductor who could, as you say, organize and otherwise direct the 17 intelligence agencies that make up the U.S. intelligence community. But did we give that person enough power to do that job? That is a question that's still out. I think most experts think that person doesn't have enough power to orchestrate things as as tightly as the 9-11 Commission would have liked. But it's one of these stories that will go on and we'll just have to reference the law, hopefully reference blinking red the next time we decide we need to sort of reorganize and revise the way power is distributed in Washington, D.C. as it pertains to the massive $80 billion intelligence community. $80 billion massive intelligence community, some two dozen plus agencies that make make it up. Uh, before we jump to uh, the debate over whether there was a recent intelligence failure, and that I'm referring to uh, Afghanistan and the fall of the Afghan government and the Afghan national security forces, your publisher comes to you, Michael Allen, they said, blinking red is just sound like hotcakes. I don't know if I mentioned this to listeners and viewers, but you can get it on Amazon. Um, but they are demanding a new 
chapter, an epilogue that says, all right, here we are 20 years later, the 20th you know, anniversary of 9-11. Michael Allen, we want to know what grade the DNI gets 20 years later or what is the one thing or two things that we need to do that we failed to do after uh, we reorganized the intelligence community uh, following 9-11 and adopted the 9-11 commission recommendations. What, what would you say to them in, in, of course, 60 seconds or less? So it's hard to know, obviously, because the intelligence community's work is highly classified. Um, I would say that, of course, the director of national intelligence has not lived up to the vision of the 9-11 commission as a very strong quarterback who can direct the offense. But if we didn't have a director of national intelligence, if we didn't have a new leader of the intelligence community, we would need to create one. Because Michael, there's so I'm just many- going to ask you to, to repeat again. I think you were underwater there for a second. So okay. uh, just go back to say the, the, your point about quarterback. Um, and, you yes. know, we, he didn't become or the DNI didn't become the quarterback and leading the offense and just kind of make your points from there. Sure. So while I don't think most experts believe that the deck director of national intelligence has lived up to the vision of a quarterback who can direct an offense. I think if we didn't have a director of national intelligence, a new overseer of all of our intelligence assets, we would need to create one. For example, as you well know, and your listeners know, United States is shifting over to a geopolitical competition with China. This is going to require a complete sea change within the intelligence community, which adapted very well, by the way, to the post 9-11 threat of international terrorism. Now we need to lift and shift and say, we've got to start directing our assets, our signals intelligence assets, our satellites, the amount of money we spend on human intelligence. We've got to shift to Asia. We've got to watch the China behemoth. And somebody's got to run that process. What and would you so, say right now? I mean, I know you're not getting the daily intelligence briefings and, and, and all the kind of reports and access that you have when you're the staff director for the Intel Committee. But just knowing those organizations, what percentage of the way there do you think our intelligence community is in terms of being seized by and seized with China uh, and the Indo-Pacific region? So I think we're less of a third of the way there. Wow. I think less it, than a third. It's because it's so hard to shift things in Washington for the reason in Washington, for the reasons you know well about the Congress. But I think intellectually, most people know what we need to do. But the Central Intelligence Agency, by the way, has been running the war on terrorism for a long time. They're doing beautifully, by the way. I mean, last night, even we apparently took out an al-Qaeda terrorist in Syria. So they're doing a wonderful job, but over time, we've got to start shifting mind share and marginal dollars over to Asia. And that's hard, especially in the wake of Afghanistan, when we're worried about the resurgence of Al-Qaeda, um, to start spending more time, more effort in Asia, because it's hard to shift resources in Washington. And you know that from your own service on the House Armed Services Committee. Well, of course, and you and I were a model of collaboration and and uh, <laughs> cooperation across. For, for your, your listeners, I mean, Roger Zakheim was a very tough customer when it comes to 
two committees that butted heads. I mean, I couldn't get anything out of you. We're definitely going to edit that out. Um, but you mentioned <laughs> Afghanistan, Michael Allen, um, and the intelligence community. Recently, a um, month or so ago, you had a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal called U.S. Spies Didn't Cause Kabul to Fall. And it was a spirited defense of the intelligence community outlining what the intelligence community does and does not do. And any failure, this is my summary, not a direct quote, uh, that the U.S. government, U.S. military, the Biden administration experienced in the exit from Afghanistan was not a failure that should be at the feet of our intelligence community, but instead policymakers and specifically President Biden and his administration. Take us through that argument or correct me if I didn't present it correctly. No, listen, I mean, the Afghanistan withdrawal was a complete debacle. And even the generals most recently on the Hill called it a strategic failure. And I was worried and I'm still worried that at some point politicians will try and shift the blame onto the intelligence community and say, hey, you know what? We didn't have warning. Warning is the most basic function of the intelligence community. And we had no idea that it was going to happen. And therefore, it's their fault. And so I was trying to make the argument that, one, intelligence is imperfect or else it'd be called information. Everyone would know it. You know, the purpose of intelligence is to try and reduce uncertainty, to try and give someone more information so they can make a better business, you know, decision in national security or even in business. And so I thought that, listen, it needed to be laid down that intelligence is by definition incomplete. But I also wanted to make the case that the way the drawdown was conducted actually made it more likely that the Afghan national security forces would collapse. And that was- so, Yeah, the- and that's a point. I mean, you make a, at the end of the piece, and this is kind of the shift, right? It's not only a defense or, or an explanation of what the intelligence community does and does not do, right? But then at the end, you say Congress should also look at whether the April 14th pullout announcement by the Biden administration made the collapse inevitable. Exactly. So the intelligence community at some point has to give a, has to come down to the White House, to the White House Situation Room, to a meeting on Afghanistan and give a snapshot in time. Like, like we think under the under these following conditions that the Afghan National Security Forces will remain viable for, let's call it six months. And what they're less able to do is on the fly diagnose how American policy changes or U.S. military tactical decisions will affect that timeline. Give me an example. So to what like okay. you pull out of Bagram or you know the exactly. air base we had in Afghanistan. Give me that's where I'm heading. Two things. One, you mentioned the April 14th speech with Biden. Biden shocks the world with it, honestly. I mean, you and I watched these things. We knew generally that he wanted to get out, but it was a total shock that he wanted to get out on 9-11. And when you read the speech, it says, you know, we're going to begin to get out in two weeks. And so that had to have been demoralizing. And do does the intelligence community bank that in? No, I don't think they baked that in, that that was in that particular speech. 
And the other thing was the shock of getting out of Bagram in the middle of the night. That must have been demoralizing to the Afghan National Security Forces that their American comrades in arms for so many years left in the middle of the night, didn't even leave them the keys and turned off the power so much so that looters were the first to figure it out and looted what was left in the base before the Afghan National Security Forces took the base over. So these were decisions that I don't think ought to be charged to the intelligence community in the assessment that we'll have to make as a country on which institutions and which government agencies failed on the analysis of when we were getting out of Afghanistan. You know, one other piece in that sentence I quoted is you said Congress should look into this. Explain to everybody why you turned to Congress uh, to explore what happened with the debacle, the failed strategic failure of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And obviously, it was my transition to your experience as a staff director on one of the most significant committees in Congress, the Intelligence Committee in the House of Representatives. Why do you think Congress could be a force for constructive and helpful uh, review of, of, of what, as you mentioned, uh, our, our generals referred to recently as a strategic failure? Well, so I'll outline the Congress that I hope would be. And we can debate. Is this whether, aspirational, but not descriptive of our current I mean, Congress? Lately, Congress is, is uh, it's been a tough place. But I mean, as the as, as your listeners know, the primary function of Congress is to pass legislation. But their other primary function or a secondary function is oversight over the executive branch. As Donald Rumsfeld told our com our committee one day, you don't have any idea how much power you have when you can say to anyone in the executive branch, you get up here next Tuesday and talk about this particular topic. You suddenly change the focus of the secretary or the CIA director and everything becomes, all right, what are we doing on the topic that they are interested in? They are and that's former in Secretary of Defense, former Chief of Staff to President Ford, Donald Rumsfeld, a guy who doesn't get, I mean, he passed recently, but during his career, didn't get pushed around lightly. And this is him saying to the Congress, to your committee, you guys have a lot of power. Yeah. And so people needed to hear that. And so Congress in its best, at its best, is conducting bipartisan oversight in the national security sphere. And they're calling people from across the Department of Defense, the State Department and the intelligence community up and demanding answers on what happened. So that's the kind of review that ought to happen. I'm worried it won't. Um and you know what? The not one of the beauty of beautiful things about the 9-11 Commission, I mean, I have some criticisms of it at different points. It went heavily partisan, like when Richard Clark got into the act way back when. And but you know, at its best, a outside commission may be the answer here to sort of depoliticize this, move it off the front burner, have them study it for a couple of years and come out with an authoritative report on what we think were our successes and failures in Afghanistan. But in the meantime, if Congre Congress should do it, and that was what I was trying to urge in my um, piece in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I think we need an outside review uh, because of the inevitable partisan lens um, members of Congress will take towards evaluating what happened in Afghanistan. It would be hard for those members to escape 
the R or D next to their name. And, and this was too significant of a, of a strategic failure uh, for it to be only looked at through, again, that partisan lens. You know, Michael, uh, kind of still working through your bio, but then getting to issues of the day. Um, while you were in, in the Congress as a staff director for the Intelligence Committee, uh, and you were doing this in 2011 to 2013, sure, the terrorism threat was something you worked and watched closely. Yes, uh, conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, no doubt, um, was a focus of the committee. But there were two other things that you really led on that are only in later years. So, you know, end of the last decade, past couple of years, the American people have been seized by. One is China, and specifically how China exploits telecommunications to undermine our national interest. And relatedly, but second, separate, the cyber threats. Both of those things really were being pushed and addressed um, while you were the staff director of the intelligence community. Give me just a quick uh, kind of reflection on how those issues kind of came before the committee. Was it obvious, you're right, in 2011, 2012, 2013? Or was it, you know, you saw something and, and understood it, had a briefing? kind of opened your eyes and said, no, we got to shine uh, light on this problem because it's going to really impact us. Of course, now, a decade later, we all understand, and there's a consensus around China or cyber. We, we, we're experiencing it every day. But what was it a decade ago when you were working on this in the Congress? So when we took, uh, when, when the Republicans took over the Congress in the 2010 midterm elections, um, Mike Rogers of Michigan became the chairman and I became his staff director. And as we toured all the intelligence agencies around town to say, hey, what's on your mind? One was CIA was about to get Osama bin Laden and they briefed us on that in January and we got him in May. But when, when we went out to the National Security Agency, we had already we had always heard about cyber. There was a cyber office in the White House. So, you know, it's not that we didn't know about it, but we were briefed on what we all now know out in the public realm, and that is the incredibly aggressive and, in, and successful efforts by China to outright steal and pilfer America's intellectual prowess. Our intellectual property has been stolen time and time again. And it wasn't just the F-35, our state-of-the-art aircraft which we had read about maybe in the New York Times in that time period. They were even stealing the recipes of seeds in the Midwest. They were stealing computer secrets, anything that you could possibly imagine. Uh, pilfering, pilfering our economy. Pilfering our economy. And the head of the National Security Agency, General Keith Alexander, said to us privately what he has since said publicly, which is this is the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. He Think was about saying that. this back in, in this period of 2011, Michael? He was. He was sounding the alarm. And it greatest was Greatest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. And this is coming from a general officer in the National Security Agency. Take 30 seconds and explain 
why that four star sitting, you know, what that individual does and what the National Security Agency is. I mean, I think since Edward Snowden, more people are familiar yes. with it, but but just top level, why yeah. is that a significant intelligence agency? So the National Security Agency is our electronic eavesdropping agency. Think of the big satellites during the Cold War that are sitting over in the United Kingdom trying to gather Russian communications or something like that. But as the world became more digital um, and more communications came online, the National Security Agency, by the way, whose job is to examine things overseas, not, not within the United States, not within the United States, like Edward Snowden tried to make us all think. Um, so he's able to see network traffic. He's able to see what the Chinese are up to because he's looking at the Chinese. And that's where he sees all of this activity. And he starts to sound the alarm. I'm sure he was telling the Obama White House this, and, and later President Obama try, did try to address it with Xi Jinping, the premier of China. But at this time, he's letting us know. And so this was one of the big things that grabbed my boss's attention and that he began to talk about very, very publicly. So, And, and, and the way you did it, I'm cutting you off because I want to, want you to get to kind of how you were the real trailblazer, at least in a public way, talking about this Chinese telecommunications company, Huawei, and you, your committee issued a report and basically said, hey, this, this is the threat. Now, was Huawei just the biggest and baddest of the group? How did you arrive at Huawei being the mechanism through which you shared with the world uh, this really significant challenge. So just looking at what I've said previously already, we're thinking China is incredibly aggressive on cyber. And then we started to think, what if the Chinese were able to actually control the telecommunications pipes, so to speak, all over the world? And what would they do if they could, if they had that capability, they would exploit it not only for eavesdropping on people in the United States that weren't on sort of secure telephone lines, but they would begin, they would really have a home court advantage to steal everything that was traveling on those pipes, not only here, but in Europe and certainly in Africa. And so we felt like we needed to sound the alarm. And we did sound the alarm by announcing an investigation of Huawei. I had no idea how much currency it would have. All of a sudden, Wall Street, which I didn't pay much attention to, and business press were very interested in what we were doing. We did a series of hearings. We did trips to China to try to interview them. And we put out a report that, honestly, I can't believe that it has been as successful as it has been. But people mention it to me all the time. It was the sounding of the alarm on what the Chinese were up to, not just with Huawei, but with a lot of their companies. And just one more second on this, you know, the way they handle things. Want to know, an alarm bell went off because you 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 said alarm bell. I'm, I'm, maybe that was a Chinese saying that you, you, you've you addressed this too long. Go ahead. I know it. I know it. I, I figured you had just sent me a text. <laughs> um, Go ahead. Yeah, I've lost my train of thought. You totally, uh, but, but anyway, you go ahead. Well, I was I was going to point out that here we are a decade later, I mean, roughly from when the report came out. And as we're kind of like a few weeks ago, 
there was a column in Bloomberg noting how this big threat of Huawei has essentially been slayed and no longer um, really presents the robust challenge. Now, no doubt China's challenging us in other ways and their sovereign owned entities and um, are, uh, continue to, to wreak havoc both on our security uh, as well as our economy. But Huawei, uh, we've, we've somehow, you know, overcome or addressed or mitigated their, their threat. Do you, do you share that view? Yes. We, after our report, we, the United States, begin to pass laws and then others in Europe and Australia have noted and done similar activities to ban Huawei from being in their countries. And then as we also have prevented American companies, Western companies from trading with them, so to speak, or selling them equipment or buying their stuff, their sales have gone down and they have um, been in real trouble. And, and here's the point I was going to make before. It's in China, you know, it's really hard to have a failing national champion company like Huawei because part of the point that we wanted to tell everyone was that it's subsidized by the state. And there's a reason that is, it's because they want every technology and every large multinational company of Chinese origin to sell and make money and do whatever, but also to serve the Chinese Communist Party, which in this case was to sort of dominate telecommunications globally so that they might have more of a home field advantage in the coming, in the coming geopolitical competition with the United States and the West. Um, I mean, it's really amazing work, and and, and uh, as much as it pains me, right? It just gets better with age. I mean, really prescient uh, work coming out of the Intelligence Committee. Was that bipartisan? Definitely. Dutch troopers were from Maryland, and and my boss, Mike Rogers of Michigan, got along. Say that again, because you, you're underwater. So you just start with definitely. Definitely. Dutch Ruppersberger, a Democrat from Maryland, actually NSA was in his district, is in his district, got along famously with my boss, Mike Rogers of Michigan. And I think they conducted oversight the way it was supposed to be done, which is in a bipartisan fashion. An another area you got into, um, and then we'll, we'll get to the lightning round here in just a minute, was cyber. And you mentioned in talking about the report you worked on with Huawei and, and bring that to light. And you said, hey, we, and we got this attention from Wall Street. You hadn't paid much attention to Wall Street. And, you know, they were all reacting and responding given the significant, you know, kind of just value, right? And, 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 and impact it has on the markets. Um, you're very focused on, on cybersecurity, right? It's obviously related and working with the private sector to figure out how government and the private sector can share information in a safe and appropriate fashion so that our economy and our companies could be protected from cyber attacks. I mean, it was also something you did er early on. Take us through that and give, give me your assessment. We recently had you uh, lead a conversation at the Reagan Institute um, with Chris Inglis, the first national cyber director, we talked about some of this stuff, you know, take us through what you're doing then and where we are now. And uh, are we as a government, we as a country doing a better job of protecting ourselves and our economy and our companies from, from cyber? Certainly doesn't feel that way. And I'll, I'll, I'll share some data on that in just a minute. 
So I mentioned that the head of the National Security Agency, General Keith Alexander, told our committee that it was the Chinese were pilfering our intellectual property and it was the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. So we began to think to ourselves, what do we need to do? Is there legislation that would be helpful? So as we examined the problem, and, and this really gets to things that we're discussing today, including at the Reagan event we had with Chris Inglis, the national cyber director, is that the private sector is the one that's being attacked. This is a new problem here in the United States. We're used to the Russians and the, whomever, Soviet Union being um, arrayed against the United States, but it's the government's problem to deal with it. Here, we've got a private sector that controls the wealth and they're the ones that need to get protected. And the government, while trying to do some basic things overseas so that we don't get attacked so often, can't get on your networks. So what we decided that made sense on a bipartisan basis was to take malware. You know, everyone knows what malware is. It's if you get an email from someone, you don't recognize it, and you make the mistake of clicking on a link, and it takes you to a foreign website, and, and that's the way your they, system. And it, it penetrates your systems, and it can steal your information. And there are millions of different versions of these. And we thought to ourselves, how legislatively can we encourage the government and the private sector to share all of this malware so that everyone could put it on its filters, so to speak? so that we might block as much as possible. It wasn't gonna block everything, but we wanted to be able to block as much as possible. And how does the government share with the private sector and how does the private sector share with the government? And that was the nub of what we were working on. Who was gonna do that mission? It, it had to be the Department of Homeland Security because people didn't want our electronic eavesdropping agency. Right. This is National like like the 9-11 piece where the CIA doesn't do stuff in the United States, a national security agency, is not supposed to be getting the knickers of our economy domestically, right? Exactly. And right in the wake of the Edward Snowden revelations, people were extraordinarily so hostile. This is the rogue contractor working yeah. for the NASCAR agency who uh, made himself, you know, the victim of, of the, you know, the national security state. And, and in fact, he was just uh, basically a Russian hand in the end of the day. Exactly. And now lives in Moscow. So we um, tried to and did, at least in legislation, make the Department of Homeland Security the interface between the private sector. Now, just to fast forward to today, Roger, we hear from companies all the time. They don't feel like they get the right information from the Department of Homeland Security. In many ways, the private sector, especially the banking industry, those who are the energy industry, those who are under the most attack have the most sophisticated systems that they've been able to procure from the private sector. So they don't feel like they're getting a lot of good stuff from what the government collects overseas. But this is a problem we continue to work on. So like a, a, an assumption maybe, you know, eight years ago was, hey, that the government would have insight into not just what's coming our way in terms of cyber attacks, but may even have the best tools to how to prevent it, stop it. Uh, but kind of looking at it now, private sector basically had to figure it out on their own. You know, you got to figure out what locks you put in your front door and your back door and your windows and 
you know, whether it's Microsoft or Colonial Pipeline or any other company, they're not looking to the government for answers. They're figuring out how to do it on their own. They are, but they know. And there's something called a zero day exploit, which I think your readers or your listeners ought to know about. That just means it's a piece of malware that no one's ever seen before. And that's the kind of stuff that still penetrates the defense, the defenses of a bank or whomever credit card company. They want to know, does the NSA, as they canvas overseas to see what the Chinese are doing, do they see these zero day exploits? Can you share them back with the private sector so that we can put them on our filters and protect ourselves? That's the part that we're not doing well yet. We've got to do better as a country. Just as harder here in the United States because we're a democracy and power is diffuse and we're working on it. 88% of Americans in our Reagan National, Deser- Reagan National Defense Survey say that cyber attacks on personal computers and accounts is what they're concerned about. It's the highest kind of percentage of any threat. 88% of Americans are concerned about cyber. That's more than nuclear attack on this country or a terrorist attack it's cyber 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 and the you know whether it's solar winds or colonial pipeline they get reminded every day seems like it of of how this seems to be the wild west and it could happen to anyone at any time is that what an amazing statistic yeah what an amazing statistic i had no idea it would be that high um, but is it, it rational, is it, is it reasonable given, you know, your expertise and the work you've done in government now out of government and Beacon global strategies that, you know, this is something that is, you know, the American people are perceiving correctly. I think so, because it's the one that's going to hit them in their own living room or kitchen table. It's the government's problem to figure out the Iranian nuclear program or the size of the Chinese Navy. The national security threat that's hitting Americans in their own homes is cybersecurity in many cases. And so I understand why they're nervous about it once I hear your statistic. Last question on this, and then we'll go to lightning round. Great conversation, Michael. Thank you for the time. Um, You recently hosted an event at the Reagan Institute. Excellent moderator, I might add, with uh, Dave Levy of of Amazon Web Services uh, and Chris Inglis, who is the uh, first newest national cyber director. Do you think that the Biden administration is organizing government in a better, improved fashion to deal with these issues? And specifically, did we, do we need a national cyber director? Well, first, let me just say, the country should be proud of Chris Inglis, the first national cyber director. He is a patriot. He worked at the National Security Agency for several decades, and he's amazing. And I have to compliment the Biden administration for putting talent, putting really superstars in the cyber positions across the government. I do have a question whether we have too many cooks in the kitchen. Rogers, what do you mean by that? We have we have Chris Inglis, but you also have the National Security Council. Go ahead. Yes, and f- officials at the Department of Homeland Security. And so, you know, we just call this lanes in the road. Do all of you know what the other people are doing? And or are you all trying to do the same thing and making a hash out of it? So I'm worried a little bit about that. You know, Congress, we both worked in Congress. Congress. And this has some appeal, but Congress's attitude is like, wow, hard problem. 
We need a czar. We need somebody on the White House grounds right. who can direct people across the interagency. And by that, I mean all the departments and bureaucracies. And, you know, I hope it works. Um, there's a lot of scholarship out there on whether having White House czars, so to speak, is the way to go. But I think I think that's the way we think of what Chris Inglis is trying to do. Uh, the jury is still out, but I'm hopeful that because they have so many quality people on the mission that it will succeed. Is the metric, Michael, um, ultimately less attacks, high profile attacks like we saw with Colonial Pipeline or Solar Winds? Or is the metric that we're getting after it and we're starting to see more public discussion of U.S. offensive cyber operations? What do you want to see, you know, organizing the kind of the chairs of, uh, of leadership is a fairly kind of bureaucratic inside Washington way to, you know, establish whether you're doing something. But ultimately, it's about are there less attacks? Are we responding more forcefully to those attacks? Right. I mean, what's your view on that? Well, I want to see more top down and more bottom up. Now, my, by more bottom up, that means cyber hygiene. That means people that own small businesses or businesses around the country that think to themselves, you know, the, the Chinese have no interest in my particular business or the Russians or or people that or, or international hacking groups have no interest in what I'm doing. I, I, you know, we've got to be able to say to them over time, yes, you know what, they are interested in it. There was a hospital in my hometown of Mobile, Alabama, that was the subject of a ransomware attack. So it is happening across the country. And so one measure has got to be, are there more companies, are there more people across the United States taking cyber seriously and doing the cyber basics that they need to as a country? But right, from the we'll, top we'll down, it. I go ahead. And from the top down, we need to see more from the federal government to protect private sector entities. Uh, let, let's leave it there on cyber and, and close out this discussion with our lightning round. This is where uh, Michael, you go from being policy expert, Washington insider, to Reagan enthusiast. So get ready. We want you to share with us your favorite book on President Reagan your favorite speech by President Reagan, and your favorite Reagan quote. You can give us all three, two, or just one. Whatever you got, you got to do it quick. Paul Leto's book on Ronald Reagan was terrific. Um, my favorite Reagan quote was at the swearing-in ceremony for William Webster as CIA director, as our system of liberty requires eternal vigilance. Nice one. That's a first quote. And of course, we'd expect from the author of Blinking Red to be a, a, a quote from President Reagan uh, when he was with the Director of Central Intelligence and the Intelligence Community. Not Wild Bill Casey? Nothing from him? You know, the I couldn't find that speech on Google. <laughs> Michael Allen, thank you so much for being with us. We're definitely going to want to have you back. Thanks so much, Rob. 